0: Glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that he is with us, he is relentlessly on our side and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning.
1: A reading from John four, four through 26. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came into Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink.
0: Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh living water.
1: Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep. So how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it, he and his sons and livestock, and passed it down to us?
0: Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within, gushing fountains of endless life.
1: Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty won't ever have to come back to this well again.
0: Go call your husband and then come back.
1: I have no husband.
0: That's nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough.
1: Oh, so you're a prophet? Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for
0: worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father, neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, but the time is coming and it has, in fact, come when what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sure being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration.
1: I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story.
0: You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. I am he.
2: So, did uh, anyone watch the debate on Tuesday? (laughs) I'm 100% kidding. That is not how I am about to start off the message. (laughs) Gotcha. Um, How many of you just tensed up a little bit when I asked that question? (laughs) Few, yeah, me too. Oh, actually, you know, I I don't think we need to touch politics for a while, because Larry, last week, uh, if you weren't here, or didn't hear it, or if you're newer here, uh, Larry, our lead pastor, gave one of the best messages I have ever heard on politics, and so I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, but... What I especially loved about Larry's message on politics last week is that he didn't do what he usually does, which when he preaches on a hard topic, he often tells people that his email is paulj at waterstonechurch.org, which is my email, and he didn't do that last week, so I felt great about it. But uh, yeah, it was an excellent message, um, and I thought it spoke to the divisiveness in our culture and just how divided we are, because we do live in an intensely, intensely divided time. You know, I can tell we live in an intensely divided time, because when I'm done preaching, I often get emails. I do. Um, and not just when Larry tells you that my email is his. But I get emails, and they're not the kind that you would expect. I actually get emails from people who are trying to offer prayer and support because they know we're so divided and they assume that whatever I have said is going to result in me getting emails from people who are upset about something I said. In fact I would actually say I get more emails of people being aware of how divided we are, expressing support and prayer, than I do of people who are actually angry. So, so thank you for that. Um, but if you are interested in evening that score and letting me know about the things that I have said that have frustrated you, um, you can feel free to reach out and email me. Uh, you can reach me at larryr.waterstonechurch.org and uh, I will be happy to get back to you with whatever has upset you or frustrated you. Um, No, but we are in a very intensely divided time. We are experiencing division, and it's not unique to us. I think all people of all places, of all tribes and all groups and all political parties experience division. But I think what makes our moment unique is that we're not only experiencing division, we're experiencing something deeper than that. We're experiencing a season of contempt for people that disagree with us. We don't only disagree with people, We detest people. And Ben Sasse, um, who's actually a senator, he wrote a book called Them. And this is what he says about this cultural moment of contempt that we have in our culture today. Do we have that quote? There it is. Our isolation has deprived us of the healthy local tribes with whom we share values and goals and ways of life that uplift us. And so we fall into anti-tribes, defined by what we're against rather than what we're for. It's a sorry substitute for real belonging, but it's better than nothing. We might not have much in the way of community, but at least we aren't like as ludicrous as those sanctimonious liberals on MSNBC or as absurd as those blowhard conservatives on Fox. There's something comforting in joining people of a similar mindset, the we, to denounce them. No one wants to sit alone, but we don't understand how our opponents believe what they believe And so we soothe our lonely souls with the balm of contempt. And I don't know about you, but the division has left me exhausted. Does anybody else feel that? Just tired of all of the disagreement, of all of the ways that people hold each other in contempt, all of the ways that people divide one another and separate from one another and say, this is my tribe, this is my people, and those are the problem. do you ever notice how when we do divide and when we create division and when we separate, we're always on the right side? I mean, isn't that funny how that works out? We are always in the righteous group, and the other group is always the problem. They're always the ones that need to fix things. And so it leaves us in this place of division where we are exhausted and worn out. And healing, oh my gosh, healing feels unimaginable. Any kind of reconciliation or coming together, unity feels like a pipe dream. And yet, and yet the story we look at today of Jesus, I think at its core, at its heart is a story in scripture like none other. Because at its core, this story of Jesus and the woman at the well is a story about Jesus stepping into human history to heal the wounds of division, to heal that separation, to begin to bring people back together under his rule and his reign in his kingdom. That at the core is what this story is about. But it begins in a rather unusual way, doesn't it? John, he tells us about Jesus traveling through Samaria, going from Judea to Galilee. And he leaves this interesting note in John 4.4. He said, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Which is interesting because if you know anything about the geography at that time, you know that's not true. And if you know anything about the culture at that time, you know it's especially not true. Because Jews would go out of their way. They would inconvenience themselves to go the long route from the south of Jerusalem to the north of Judea and avoid Samaria at all costs. Under no circumstances would a Jew choose to take a route to go through Samaria. And yet John says Jesus had to go? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? In fact, it feels even weirder because earlier in John's gospel, we see that Jesus actually goes around Samaria. He doesn't go through. So why does Jesus have to go through Samaria? That's a question that hangs over this entire text, this entire story is why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? And the story continues in verse seven, and it says this, and it gives us a lot of detail in these four verses that are incredibly important to this story. It says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water at the well Jesus was sitting at, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, I don't know how to tell you that those four sentences we just read to the, the original audience, to the people who would have heard this story in the beginning, would have gasped at those four sentences they would have been shocked at what they're hearing. It would have sounded scandalous to their ears. There are so many things wrong with the picture of what Jesus is doing in this situation. In fact, do any of you remember those, those pictures? Maybe you looked at them as a kid or you've looked at them with grandkids of, of what's wrong with the picture? Here's an example of, of what I'm talking about. Can anyone tell me what's wrong with this picture? What doesn't quite make sense about this picture? You can shout it out when you see it. There's two moons, that's right. The astronaut is on the moon, and then there's a moon in the background where you would supposedly see the Earth, okay? So that's what's wrong with the picture. Well, I'll give you another try because maybe that one was hard. Here's another picture. What's wrong with this picture? Driving on the wrong side of the road. Right, you can see contextually they're in London, you see Big Ben, you see the phone booth, and they're driving on the left-hand side in the UK, but in the picture they're driving on the right. So that's what's wrong with the picture. So when you hear this story of Jesus, if you were in the original audience, there would be all sorts of things that would be going off in your head about what's wrong with this picture. The first of them is ethnicity. Jesus, a Jewish man, is, is with a Samaritan. He's talking and interacting with a Samaritan. And as John says, Jews and Samaritans did not associate with one another. They didn't talk to one another. They didn't do business with one another. They didn't drink from the same fountain. They certainly wouldn't eat together. I mean, they were completely segregated society, and Jews detested the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans, when the Jews came back from exile from Babylon, they came back and they found their land occupied by Samaritans. People who claimed that they were Jewish in heritage, but who were what they would call a half-breed, a mixed-breed. They weren't pure Jews. And so they left this space separate, and it caused a lot of bloodshed. It caused a lot of animosity and tension, and for hundreds of years they've been living together without interacting. And yet Jesus doesn't ignore this Samaritan. But not only is there a problem in the picture of of ethnicity, there's also a problem of gender because Jesus is talking to a woman and no respectable Jewish man in that day would ever talk to a woman. No man would talk to a woman that he wasn't related to or married to and often a man would not talk to his wife in public because to do so was to risk impropriety. It was to risk scandal. It was to risk gossip. And so there was this separation of the genders in that day that feels very foreign to us, but that was so common that when people heard Jesus is talking to a woman, there would have been a collective gasp in the room. How could Jesus do that? That is so improper. And yet Jesus talks with her. But to make matters even worse, to scandalize us even further, John leaves us with this note that all of his disciples had gone into town, which you've got to know they were not happy about. They're in Samaria, a place they don't want to be. All of Jesus' disciples are Jewish. They're in Samaria, they don't want to be there. They've gone into town to buy food from Samaritans, something they would not want to do, and Jesus is sitting alone at the well. So he is not only talking to a Samaritan, into a woman, but he is doing so alone. And to make matters even worse, he asks her for one of the most intimate things you can ask of a person in that day to share a drink with them. <gasps> what? I mean, we don't get it. But the only way I can describe to you what is going on in this context of the story would be if you saw me or Larry, our lead pastor, going into a hotel room with a woman we are not married to. And you saw that happen and you think, that is not what? Nope, that is not what is supposed to happen. That is what the people hearing this story are thinking of Jesus in this moment. I mean, the scandal is so deep in this story. Jesus is doing things that that devout Jewish men should never, ever, ever do. Even the woman is shocked by what he does. She said, how can you, a Jewish person, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? What is Jesus doing? Is this why he had to go to Samaria, to meet with this woman? See, and then they begin talking about... What you talk about in that kind of situation, theology, right? That's what you talk about. And he begins having this conversation with her after she, he asks her for a drink. And she says, how, what, how can you even ask me that? He said, actually, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink. And I would give you a drink of living water. Water that would quench your thirst so that you would never be thirsty again. What's interesting is, is this phrase, living water. What, what is living water? Well, it's actually more simple than you would imagine. Living water is flowing water. It's stream water, it's a river. See, she's at a well and, and in that day, you could get water from one of two places, a well, or some sort of stagnant water source, or you could get it from a river. And a river was always preferable because it was crisp, it was clear, it was cool, it was running, it was flowing, you didn't have to worry about diseases. And, and what is especially important about living water is living water is the type of water in that day that was used for ritual cleanliness. It was the type of water that was expected to be used in order to make people cleansed of their sin and purified. And Jesus says, this is the water I have. I have flowing water, living water that can cleanse you of your sin and will quench your thirst so that you will never be thirsty again. She doesn't really understand what he's talking about, but she says, I want some of that water. Please give me some. Now, it sounds a little mansplaining because she doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, and so Jesus' response is, well, why don't you go get your husband, and I can explain it to him, and then we can have a conversation. And what you have to understand is, again, to the original audience, when Jesus asks for the woman's husband, in this moment, there's a huge sigh of relief. Oh, my goodness, thank you. Jesus, you were playing with fire, man. You need to talk to the husband first. You can't talk to a woman directly. What are you thinking? Thank goodness you were getting the husband into the picture so you can have a proper conversation and stop talking to this woman directly. And then all of that relief gets thrown out the window because she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds, that's true. You've actually had five husbands. And the man that you are currently living with is not your husband. You see, and the level of scandal of this story goes even further because not only is this woman that Jesus is alone with, a Samaritan and a woman, she is a promiscuous woman. She is a woman who has been married five times and is living with someone who is not her husband. Now you have to understand, in that day, that living situation would have made this woman perpetually unclean. There is not a moment of a day in her life where she is not seen by the society she lives in as completely and utterly unclean and unfit for any kind of social interaction. It's why she has to go to the well at noon. Because you see, in that day, women would go to the well together in the cool of the day or in the evening when it was cooler because it's a lot of hard work. The well is 100 feet deep and you're pulling up water. It's a lot of work. And so they would go in the cool of the day and they would go together because it was dangerous and it could be a social affair. This woman was not allowed at that setting because of her uncleanliness. There is no way that her community would risk being contaminated by her. And so they refuse to let her go with them. And she has to go by herself, which is more dangerous, more work, and in the heat of the day, which is harder. And this is where Jesus meets that woman and begins having this dialogue with her about living water that can cleanse her. See, what we have to understand in this moment that we often miss, is that Jesus is interacting with this woman and he is showing her a glimpse into why he came to our world. He is showing her a Samaritan woman who is always unclean who he really is. God is revealing himself to one of the last people on earth the Jewish community would expect him to reveal himself to. The question is why? Why would Jesus interact with this woman at this well in Samaria? Why would he choose to interact with her when he knows her history, he knows her story? She doesn't reveal her past to him. He knows her past before she even explains herself. To him. And when he does so, she says, Wow, I can tell that you are a prophet. You are someone from God with a message from God for us. And so she begins talking to him about okay, well, let me ask you a question then. If you're a prophet, if you understand God, tell me then. How should we worship God? Because Samaritans, they had their own mountain in Samaria where they would worship God. And on this mountain, that was the place where all of their rituals, all of their their worship was done because that was the place that God met them. And yet Jews believed that that mountain was illegitimate and they had their own mountain in Jerusalem where they would worship and where they would come before Yahweh and where they would experience God's presence. And she says, which is right? Which way do we experience God? And Jesus' answer to her is fascinating. He says, there is a day that is coming that has now come in me that all of those ways people divide themselves, all of those ways that people separate themselves are coming undone. You see, Jesus came to this world to break down the barriers that separate us from God and that separate us from one another that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there is a hope for unity beyond anything we can comprehend. And so he begins with this woman, the last woman we would expect God to reveal his fullness to, to reveal that he is the Messiah. And he begins with her and he begins tearing down these barriers and these divisions that have separated her from God and from others. You know, it's interesting, this woman, she has to be filled with so much shame. Remember, there is not a single second of a single moment of a single day where she is not seen through the lens of uncleanliness and shame in her culture. She is not fit to be a part of the community. She is completely separated. And Jesus enters into her life and begins having this conversation with her. And he finds something that I think is so important for us to understand about this woman's story. Because we often tell this story about this woman. And we, we present her as some sort of, of temptress. Some sort of woman who, who has this insatiable desire for men that cannot be met. And so she goes from one man to another and that keeps cheating and she's a serial adulterer and men keep divorcing her and keep leaving her. But it's it's equally as likely, and we have to understand this, that in that day, a woman petitioning for divorce was so uncommon. Women did not have the power to petition for a divorce. And so she may have been divorced by, by some men because she was an adulterer. That, that might have happened, but how many men do you think are gonna keep marrying her after she keeps cheating on them? You see, it's more likely, and quite likely in fact, that this woman has continually been mistreated and abused by the men who said that they would protect and provide for her. That the men who have said they will take care of her have abandoned her. And yet it doesn't really matter, does it? Because often we label women the same way. It's their fault, it's their responsibility. What did they do to cause that treatment? The same label of sinner is put on them. You see, Jesus sees through all of that. He speaks directly to this woman's life and her living situation and her circumstances. And he does not shame her, but he begins to tear down the walls of shame by revealing the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God that does not shame us for our past or want to destroy us because of our past, but that rescues and redeems and reconciles our past. See, Jesus in this moment is tearing down those walls that have separated her from God by offering her living water, water that can cleanse her of her sins, of the things she has done and that have been done to her so that she can experience communion and unity with the Father, He is breaking down the walls of shame in her life. And He offers us the same living water. Because let's be real, all of us, it doesn't matter what our story is, all of us carry baggage and shame. Things that we have done and things that have been done to us that cause deep shame in our souls that cause us to feel like we are separate from God, that there is no way God could ever love us because of what we have done or because of what has happened to us. And Jesus steps into our life the same way he does to the Samaritan woman, and he offers us living water, water that can cleanse us from our past and restore a future of connection and communion with the Father. And if Jesus is the the bridge that brings God to us and and can erase and heal the division of shame we have in our hearts, then Jesus is the sledgehammer that tears down and breaks down the walls that divide us from one another. It's so fascinating, in this story, you have just about every division that is imaginable contained within the story. There's division around gender, there's division around ethnicity, there's political division, and there's religious division. I mean, what other ways do we separate ourselves? Those are the the four. And yet Jesus, in this interaction with this woman and with this Samaritan village, begins tearing down the walls and the division and the wounds of division that have been in that community for hundreds of years. It's so fascinating when you see the disciples, they come back from getting food and they see Jesus talking to this woman and as they're, they're walking back, they see him from a far way off talking to him and it says that they're startled, they're shocked, they stop in their tracks and they don't understand what Jesus is doing because it feels very unusual and very improper to them. And they're so befuddled by what Jesus is doing that they walk up to him and, and John says, we didn't say anything because we didn't know what to say to him. So we just said, uh, hey, Jesus, are you feeling okay? Do you need to eat? Are you, are you hungry? Like, is the sun getting to you? Like, this feels like, are you okay? And it's fascinating. Jesus says to them, look around you. The fields are ripe for harvest. What? Maybe you are hungry. You're talking about food now. I don't know. Like what? (laughs) Jesus, what are you talking about? The fields are ripe for harvest. See, what Jesus is telling his disciples, the reason he had to go through Samaria is because he had to let them see. He had to let them know that his gospel message, his kingdom, his messiahship was not contained within the bounds of Israel that the people we divide ourselves from, the people that we separate ourselves from, the people that we would declare our enemy, the people that we hate, the people we detest, the people that we think are the worst people on the face of the earth are the harvest. They are the people that Jesus has come to rescue and that he has sent his people to come and interact with and converse with and share the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ with. And that all of the ways that we have divided ourselves based on ethnicity and gender and religion and politics, all of those things have to come down in Jesus' name. I was talking this week with... um, Dr. Mark Young, who is the president of Denver Seminary, and that's not a name drop. I'm not trying to tell you how cool I am because I talked to the president of Denver Seminary. Uh, He was here talking with me because we're doing a a, a podcast uh, this fall that's called the Monday Morning Phone Call. And the idea behind the Monday Morning Phone Call podcast is that we want to talk about all the things that when you talk about on a Sunday morning result in a phone call on Monday morning from people who are upset. All those things that that touch on buttons that are hard and difficult for people. And and we just want to have conversations around those things. And Larry and I talking through what we wanted to, to do this fall, we decided we wanted to cover politics And how do we help our church engage in the political sphere as Christians, as followers of Jesus above all else? And so we invited Dr. Young because he speaks often and so well about how we have to engage with politics not from the lens of right or left, but through the lens of the kingdom. That we have to be centered on Jesus first and foremost in any way we engage in the political sphere. And so we invited him in for an interview to talk through this and to, to ask him questions and to hear his wisdom. And, and he said something towards the end of our conversation that literally made my jaw drop. We were having a conversation and he, he was talking about the divisiveness and the way that we are divided and the polarized nature of our conversations and interaction. And he said, Paul, I want you to think about the person that you most disagree with. I want you to think about the person that you Just cannot even fathom how they could think or believe what they think and believe. The person that you most detest, he said, because they are created in the image of God, that person that is your enemy reveals more beauty and more grace and more of the character and nature of God than the most beautiful sunset you could see over the mountains in Colorado. I do not see people that way. I do not see my enemies that way. That because they are created in the image of God, the people that I would divide and separate myself from can actually reveal more to me about the true nature of Jesus Christ than the most beautiful sunset I could ever see. See, when we come before the cross, when we come to the gospel message, we see that Jesus has come to dare down the barriers that divide us and separate us from God and from one another. And there's no space that we're reminded of that more fully and more beautifully than the place of the table, communion. Because when we come to the table and to the Lord's Supper, and we come to that space where where our sins are laid bare and the reality of what Christ has done for us to cleanse us from our sin, to erase the separation and the barrier we have between God, begins to erase the barriers and the separation we have with one another because we have all fallen short we are all imperfect we are all sinful so when we come to the table we are not only reminded that Jesus can cleanse us and our stories and our past but he can erase the division the wounds of our past that have divided and separated us from one another. And that under his rule and his reign, we can be an alternate community that does not reflect the divisions of the world, but that heals them. And so I'd like to invite you in this moment to quiet yourself and to to enter intentionally into Jesus' presence. And to begin to ask him how he might reveal the divisions and separation you feel between him and God, but also the divisions that you might feel in your heart towards others. Ask him to step into that space and to begin healing the division that you feel. Ask him to speak to you in this moment. And then in a little bit, we'll take communion together and go to the Lord's table together.